So we've been in this series on identity, uh, discovering who I am in Christ, and I want to remind you that your identity affects your activity. Who you are affects how you live. It relates to how you live. And so, so far in this series, we've seen that in Christ we are a new creation. Uh, We have seen that in Christ we are a child of God, a citizen of heaven. Uh, Last time, two weeks ago, we saw that we are a member of the body of Christ. And tonight we take that a step further. We're going to see how as we are members of his body, we become, we have become a temple. Our body has become a temple of the Holy Spirit. I have a picture here for you. This is in Athens, Greece. Anybody actually been there to see this? Dave, you've been there? The Parthenon in Athens. This was a functioning temple back when the Apostle Paul was alive, and it was uh, dedicated to the Greek goddess uh, Thena, Um, quite a marvel of architecture, Uh, eight columns, in fact, the eight columns that are, that span the front of the U.S. Supreme Court is taken from the same uh, idea here, it's taken from the Parthenon. It was constructed, it was the first building constructed of pure pentelic marble. the the tiles of the roof were so pure that the sunlight penetrated into the inner chamber. The nous, that inner chamber, it housed this 45-foot-tall statue of Athena. And um, she was wearing a golden dress wrapped around this wooden frame. The dress weighed 400 pounds. Her arms, her feet, her hands, her neck, and her head were all carved out of pure ivory, and her face featured precious jewels. And so you can imagine just what a sight, how impressive uh, the Pantheon and being able to go into that temple and, and seeing this sight. Acts chapter 17 tells us that when Paul went to Athens, he wasn't as impressed by their temple. He wasn't impressed by Athena. Uh, In fact, he challenged the Supreme Court of Athens. They're they're thinking, this is in Acts chapter 17, he, on Marcel, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all life and breath to all things. And so Paul was there. He saw this, and it's all his glory. Well, from Athens, uh, Paul then traveled about 50 miles or so to Corinth. As, As you read Acts, after leaving Athens, it tells us that he goes to Corinth. And of course, we're reading a letter written to the church that was established on that trip. Uh, Paul goes there, and there in, in Corinth, is this, these are the ruins of the temple of Epaphrodite there in Corinth. Um, and so Paul, this was functioning at the time that Paul was there. And Paul, he, he starts preaching the gospel. He first goes into the synagogues, and, and uh, the Jews reject him, and, and he goes to the Gentiles, and people are saved, and a church was started there. Well, three to five years later, Paul writes this letter that we are reading here tonight. 
And he writes it because the church in Corinth, the believers in Corinth, they were mixed up in all kinds. The church was a mess. And what, as you read the book of 1 Corinthians, what you find is that there was all kinds of scandals going on. The church was involved. People in the church were involved in all sorts of, of illicit sexual activity. Uh, you know, they're sleeping around on Saturday night and they're singing in the choir on Sunday morning. And so Paul appeals to them in this book. And we're going to, let's read our text for tonight. This is from chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. This is going to be the, our focus tonight. He says this, he says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. And look what he says here. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, verse 20, for you were bought at a price. Paul says, so glorify God with your body, all right? So let's dig into this tonight. We're going to see, first of all, the place God dwells. Then we're going to see the purity that God requires for his dwelling. And then we're going to see the pursuit or the purpose of God's dwelling within us. So first, the place God dwells. And uh, number one here, as it says on the screen, my body is God's what? What does it say? God's habitation. Paul says this in verse 19, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So, church, who are you in Christ? Who are you in Christ? Paul says you are a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't dwell in shrines made by hands. God does not dwell in buildings. I know sometimes we preachers, we say stupid things like, welcome to the house of God. Now, it's, this is, there's no building that is the house of God. We, as God's people, we are God's dwelling. God doesn't dwell in a temple. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in the temple at Jerusalem, right? That was the icon of God's presence. And, and the temple was divided into three parts. And here's a picture of it on the screen for you. First of all, there was the exterior, the, the outer court, and that was seen by everyone. Every Israelite was allowed to enter into that outer court. And it was there in that outer court where all the religious service was performed. Then inside that, that court, the first room in the temple was called the holy place. It was inside the temple itself, and only the priests could enter there. They would go in there to present to God the blood, uh, the, uh, the incense, the bread, the oil, and they would uh, serve there in that place, and everything that happened in that place was for the unseen glory behind the veil, what was that third part of the temple, the holiest place, or as it's called, the holy of holies, the inner sanctuary of God's temple. No one went in there except one time a year. The high priest would go into the, the holy of holies. He would go in there with fear and trembling. They'd actually tie a rope around him, you know, just in case 
he went in there unclean, had any sin or whatever. He was unclean. They'd have to drag him out. He had bells on the fringes of his garment. And if the bell stopped and they didn't hear anything for a while, they'd start jerking on that rope and pull him out. It was to, to go into that Holy of Holies was to go into the very presence of God. It was the most sacred part of the temple. And for that matter, all the rest of the, of, of the temple the holy place, the outer court, all of it existed for the holy of holies. It all depended on the presence of God in the holy of holies. Well, the temple complex that can be seen in Jerusalem today, it sits on about 20 acres. Did you know that uh, as it sits today, that work begun about 20 years before Christ? Um, Herod the Great started it. It wasn't finished at Christ's birth. It wasn't finished at Christ's dedication. It wasn't finished at his bar mitzvah. It wasn't finished at his trial or at his crucifixion or even at his ascension. That temple, Herod's temple, was not completed until 66 AD. Took a while. You think our building project's taken a while. That one took a while. 66 AD. And four years after it was finished, God said, we don't need this anymore. And he sent a Roman general by the name of Titus to destroy it, to tear it down. Paul is writing this letter 15 years before the destruction of that temple. So, so you with me? The Parthenon, it's there. All these little towns, all the places that Paul went in, they all had their temples to all these different gods. Uh, there in Corinth, there was a temple. In Jerusalem, there was a temple. These were the places that people uh, in that day, they would go into these places to worship the divine as they believed the divine to be. Well, Jesus promised that when he left, he would send the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of those who followed him. That God's presence would move from the temple to the hearts of Christians, and that is exactly what happened. And so, God doesn't dwell in man-made buildings. God has chosen to live in human vessels, and all who are in Christ make up his temple. And so, as God's temple today, we also have three parts, and that's up there on the screen for you. There's the outer court. It's the body. That's what you see on the outside, the visible, external life where all of our conduct is to be regulated by the word of God and everything that we do is for the God who lives within us, right? So there's the outer court and then there is the soul with its inner life, its power of mind and feelings or emotion and, and will. And the believer this is the holy place. This is where our thoughts and affections and desires move about as those priests in that holy place, rendering God service in the light of full consciousness. And then there is the Spirit. Behind the veil, if you will, hidden from all human sight, hidden from light, Completely hidden there, the soul, the innermost sanctuary, the secret place of the Most High God where God dwells, and it's the spirit nature that links us as men, as human beings, to God, and it's the most sacred part of the temple. 
of the Holy Spirit. And the rest of the temple all exists and depends on God in his presence within our spirit. So God doesn't have any other physical dwelling. God doesn't have a nation. I know that as Americans we like to think that, you know, somehow God lives here. You know, sometimes when missionaries go away, I remember when my brother was going to South Africa, you know, we all went to Boston, we saw their family off, this is several years, many years ago, and uh, they were going there to church plant, they were missionaries in Johannesburg area for like 10 years, and uh, man, y- you say goodbye to your family, and they're getting on a plane, and you know, like, Johannesburg at the time was the murder capital of the world, you know, it was a dangerous place to live, and sometimes it's easy for us to think that God lives in America, and you leave America and somehow, like, God's not there. Look, God doesn't dwell in a nation. He doesn't dwell. He doesn't, there's no capital, not even Jerusalem at this point, depending on your eschatology, right? I, I think one day it will become that when Jesus sets up his rule and reign. But, look, God doesn't reside in a capital. God doesn't even reside in the clouds. He doesn't reside in the sky. He's everywhere, yes. He's omnipresent. His presence fills all things, yes, but according to his word, he makes his people his home. The blood-cleansed heart of the believer is God's permanent dwelling. Why is this important for us to know that our body is the temple of God? Here's why. Because it helps us to understand how God sees us. It helps us to understand our identity God does not consider us worthless. He doesn't consider our bodies worthless. We have great value to God. Here's what uh, Paul says here in this verse. First of all, he tells us that our body was bought by God. See it there in verse 20? For you were bought at a price. What was the price of this purchase? It was the blood of Christ. You see, when when Christ died, his sacrifice on the cross, that redemption did not just purchase our spirit, it not just purchased our soul, it purchased our body as well. This is what I think Paul is saying here. Even our body is included. He says in verse 15, your bodies are part of Christ's body. So we just talked about how we're part of the, we're members of the body of Christ. We'll understand something, that your body is a member of, of Christ's body. That's how God sees you and I and how he sees our bodies. So our body was bought by God and our, therefore, therefore our body belongs to God. Look in verse 19. He says, you are not your own. You're not your own. Back in that day, the Corinthians would be very accustomed to going into the marketplace and buying a slave. They could do it. If you had the money, you could go buy a slave in the marketplace. And when a slave was bought, that slave completely belonged to their master. Body included. Totally the possession of their Master, Paul says in verse 13, if you go back a little bit in your Bible there, he says, the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's now and that's for all eternity. He says in verse 14, God raised up the Lord and will raise us up by his power. You see, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
My body has been stamped for all eternity. And so is yours if you're a believer. So what's all this mean? It means this. It means that if he bought my body and my body belongs to him, it means that I have no final authority to my body. Now, church, how contrary is this to what the culture says? How many times do we hear, hey, man, it's my body. I can do with it whatever I want. If we're not careful, we as Christians will will start thinking the same stuff. We'll, We'll start speaking the same stuff. We'll start living according to the same philosophies. My body's mine. I can do with it whatever I want. If you're a child of God, God says, no, it's not yours. I bought that. And I'm going to resurrect that one day. It's mine for all eternity. You see, God holds the right to our body. Our body is not ours to do whatever we want. Verse 17, Paul says, anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Church, understand, we are one spirit with God, and his spirit lives within us. So who is this spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, understand, the Holy Spirit isn't a something. The Holy Spirit is a someone. Not some abstract force, not a mere physical presence in the world. The Holy Spirit is one person of the Godhead. To be specific, the third person of the Holy Trinity. And if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is already living inside of you at work to make you more like Jesus. So let's just think about this for a minute. What is the ministry of the, Holy, of the indwelling Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, if we are his temple, what does that look like? What is he in there for? Well, let me give you a little idea about what this looks like. Got some words on the screen there. There are other things we could have added to this list. I just picked out eight, and we'll go through them quickly. The Spirit assures us that we are God's. So what Paul writes in Romans, that, that, his, that the Spirit within us assures us that we are a child of God. Do you have that assurance in your heart? That you're a child of God. Look, I understand that, that there are people who think that they're a child of God based on bad information, right? Based on false doctrine. But, but understanding the Scripture and what the Scripture says, does the Spirit of God assure you that, that you are a child? That's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us. Also, the Spirit sanctifies us. He sets us apart. He makes us more holy, and that's a progressive thing. Can you see that in your life? Can you look back over the last... Year. Can you look back over in your life over the last five years, 10 years? How long have you been saved? The last 15 years or however long you've been saved, 50 years for some of you. Have you seen the Holy Spirit of God progressively making you more like Jesus? That's what he's doing in there. He's not taking a nap. He's doing the work. He's sanctifying. He teaches us also. Jesus promises to the disciples in John chapter 14 there in the upper room, that the Spirit would enable them and equip them to remember and write and apply the life and teaching of the Word of God. For us today, the Holy Spirit illuminates the Bible for us. The greatest Bible teacher in all the world lives inside of you. Before you read the Bible, do you take the time just to say, Lord, open my eyes, help me understand, right? Like David prays. It's the Psalm 119, you know. 
uh, give me understanding, make me to walk in the What he's saying is, illuminate my mind, then help me to do this, help me to obey this. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you, do you look to him when you sit down with the word, teach me? One of my prayers just before, um, at the beginning of the sermon, that's one of the things I prayed for, that the Holy Spirit would do the teaching through his word. That's, we need the Spirit of God to be our teacher. He leads us. Galatians 5, uh, 16 through 18, talks about this, how, how the Holy Spirit will guide us and lead us. How, how much we need direction in our life, don't we? We need leadership in our life. The Holy Spirit does that, and he does that mostly through his word. But God, he, he leads us. He, he dwells within us to lead us. He also dwells within us to empower us. Uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, write that promise that Jesus made to his disciples before he went to heaven, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and would empower them. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 3 as well, that, that the Holy Spirit strengthens with power our inner being. We also know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit helps us. Paul says that he helps our weaknesses. Do you have any weaknesses? The Holy Spirit of God lives within you, dwells within you, to help you with those weaknesses, even interceding for you, praying for you. He also gifts us with spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 13 talks about that. Uh, these unique skills and abilities, spiritual gifts that God gives to every believer. Think of it like a spiritual birthday present. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit gifted you with, with an ability to, uh, that is not meant for your good. It's meant for the, the common good of the body of Christ. And we're to exercise those gifts within the body. And then also the Holy Spirit dwells within us as a seal. He seals us. In those days, slaves and cattle would bear a seal of the owner that marked them. Seals were also used as a form of security. Kings would seal something um, to say that it, it hadn't been touched, right, or, or somehow tampered with. That seal, that unbroken seal uh, indicated that. Well, the indwelling Holy Spirit is God's confirmation that we belong to him and that one day we're going to dwell with him forever. And that nobody can tamper with that. We're completely secure in him. And the Holy Spirit, part of his ministry of dwelling within us, is that being that seal. So listen, you have all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. Do you believe that? You have all the Holy Spirit you're going to ever get. The question is, is how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? That's where the problem comes in. We need to be completely surrendered to his work in our life. We'll dive into that a little bit deeper. So the place that God dwells, we are his habitation. Two, the purity that God requires, and here it is on the screen. Number two, our body is to be kept clean of all unholy contamination. This is what Paul is really diving into in these chapters of 1 Corinthians because the, the church at Corinth uh, had some serious problems going on, and one of them had to do with sexual immorality. Uh, Corinth was a city given over to the worship of sex. Um, there at the temple of Epaphrodite, um, there were a thousand priestesses that uh, worked their trade, and part of their idolatry was 
immorality. And what was happening was this was infiltrating the church. People had been saved out of that, and they were continuing to practice that. And they were making excuses for it. If you look at verse number 12, there's one of the excuses they were making. They were saying, that, well, everything is permissible for me. They're actually, you know, kind of tapping into something Paul had said. And, you know, it's what we hear today. Again, it's my body. I can do with it whatever I want, right? Society today accepts that as truth. Everything's permissible for me. Another excuse that they were making is in verse number 13. They were saying that food is for the stomach and stomach for food. You say, well, that's kind of a strange argument. How's that work? Well, what they were doing, which was common in ancient times, was they were linking eating food as a human need, necessity, and they were linking eating with having sex. The thinking went like this. Just like food is meant for the stomach and vice versa, sex is meant for the body and vice versa, the body for sex. And so natural body processes are of no real significance. It's just part of being a human being. There's no moral consequence what they were saying. So since eating and digesting food didn't have any bearing on our morals and spiritual life, other physical activities such as sex, they would say, had no bearing on their spiritual life. And it was this style that was very typical of Greek dualistic uh, thought. They're apparently reasoning that God is only concerned with the aspects of the person that are going to survive death. That after death, your body, your, you know, they're, they're thinking the body's going to die, um, you know, it's going to be gone, and so whatever you do in that body with that body, it's of no consequence. Well, Paul reminds them here, he shoots down every one of their excuses. They say everything is permissible, he says, but not everything is beneficial. He says food is for the stomach and stomach for the, for the food uh, and, and, he, and that God would do away with both of them. But Paul states there in verse 13, point blank, if you see it, however, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And so Paul denies their argument. He's saying, look, you guys are, you guys are way off here. There is a difference between eating food and sexual immorality. There's a big difference. And I think it's pretty cool that the Bible is so relevant even here in 2023, right? Because, I mean, look, this is, isn't this like such a thing in our society? I mean, just as crazy as it was in Corinth, such a, a sex-crazed society, boy, wouldn't you say that ours is? It is. The problem is this. The problem is that even in Christian churches, there are many voices that are being raised that, that are saying that we need to soften our view of sexual immorality. We need to soften our view of certain sexual practices and allow them to be manifested even by Christians. And this is exactly the problem in Corinth. In fact, if you read two chapters well, the chapter, chapter 5, the chapter before this one, read that one. Boy, there was some weird stuff going on in there. This, and, and Paul actually says, look, you need, to, you need to put this person out of the church if they are going to live like that and not repent, not turn from their sin. It was serious. Paul's saying, you are defiling the temple of God. 
You're def- when you defile your body in sexual immorality, he's making the case is defiling our body, no matter how justified it may be in society. He's saying you are defiling the temple of God. And rather than defiling the temple of God, he says in verse 18, look at verse 18. He says, flee sexual immorality. He says every other sin is a, a, is a every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. What is he saying? He's saying to a certain degree, sexual immorality is worse than other sins because of this sexual immorality establishes this one flesh union. And so it's against the body. Sexual sin is against the body because it is uniquely body-joining and therefore uniquely body-defiling. And here's Paul's apostolic advice. It's real simple. Run. Run. Flee. Get out of there. Don't fool around with this. Don't play around. You have to get away. If you're parked in a car and you're beginning to get aroused, start the engine and drive home. I mean, let's just be practical. If you're on your computer and something smutty pops up, leave the room, man. Don't don't try to mess around with it. Leave. Get out of there, if you're watching TV and something dirty comes up, change the channel. You don't have to keep watching it, even though you're three-quarters of the way through it, right? Paul says, run. Don't try to fight with it. Don't try to overcome it. Don't try to suppress it. Get away. That's it. And this flea immorality advice is seen elsewhere in the Bible. Let me give you an illustration, of course, Probably the best one that's here on the screen is, is this guy, Joseph. You remember the story? Let me, let me remind you of something first. It says in Genesis 41, 38, that Joseph was a man who has God's spirit in him. Who's that sound like? Us, as believers. God's spirit was within him. In chapter 39 and verse 12 of Genesis, we find that Potiphar's wife grabs his coat. She had been trying to seduce him for some time. She finally grabs him by the coat, and he leaves his coat in her hand. What does he do? He makes a run for it. What was his chief motivation? He says in Genesis 39.9, he did not want to sin against God. That's why he ran. He was more fearful of displeasing God than being falsely accused. He was more fearful of sinning against God than being thrown in prison. And he was falsely accused and he was thrown in prison. But he did the right thing. And he set an example for us to run. Fleeing temptation just simply means that we recognize this as the enemy. And we go the other way. We run the other way. Some sins are just too appealing, too subtle, too strong for us. And I think this is what Paul's getting at, is that when it comes to this realm in our life, you just have to, you have to get out of there. You have to make a run for it. 
And so while the temptation is not sin, what you see in the picture, that's not, Joseph is not sinning because he's been tempted. The sexual immorality begins with the temptation. And the temptation is to engage in sexuality outside of God's good boundaries. And so when we don't flee, what happens? Well, action soon follows. Let me give you a second illustration of why it's necessary to flee. And if you, if you go back to Genesis, and you can do this later, you read 39 where it talks about Joseph's example of running, just read the chapter before it. And you'll understand why chapter 39 is where it is. Because if you read chapter 38, there's a story about one of Joseph's brothers, Reuben. Well, the story goes. I'm not going to get into all the details. We don't have the time. But, but Reuben had, a, had some sons and, and uh, a, a daughter-in-law and how it went back there. And I know it's a little strange. We wouldn't ever think of doing this today. But back then, if, if your son died and he was married, you gave that wife to one of your other sons. And, that, and he was to carry on the name, the line of that brother. And that's so uh, she's, Tamar's married to son number one. He dies and so gives her to son number two. He dies. I mean, and so basically what happens is, is Tamar is kind of left without a husband. And she gets impatient. So one day she dresses up as a harlot and she knows that Reuben is coming into town. She sits by the gate and Reuben, rather than running from the temptation, he goes over to Tamar and she's veiled. He, can't, he doesn't know it's Tamar. And he says, hey, I want to hire you. Well, she ends up pregnant For her services, Reuben had no way to pay her, so he was like, I'm going to give you my, I think it was his ring and his staff. Take this, and, and I'll pay you. And then he couldn't, sent people to pay her, couldn't find her. Long story short, they find out that she's pregnant, and one of Joseph's other brothers, I guess it was Judah, said, she needs to die. She's been playing the harlot. Well... The whole, all the sordid affair came out. That's what happens when you don't run from temptation. Reuben should have run from it. Joseph ran from it. And all the mess that happened in Reuben's life and family, she became pregnant with twins, and what a, just a mess that happened from all of that. That's what happens. This is why Proverbs warns us. Can a man embrace fire and his clothes not be burned? If your house is on fire in the middle of the night, what do you do? Some of you would probably try to put the thing out. I mean, if your house is involved in a fire, I mean, the best thing you can do is get your kids, right? The little, you get the little ones and you get them out of the house. You run. Well, sexual immorality is as destructive to our lives and to our family as fire is in our home. Inside the fireplace, sex is something that can keep the, the family, the home warm, right? Keep the marriage warm. 
Outside the fireplace, though, what happens? You burn the house down. Sex inside of, of marriage is, is a beautiful thing. It, it's a beautiful thing. And it, it, again, it keeps the relationship warm. But, but outside of marriage, you take it out of the fireplace, and now you're going to burn down your marriage. Now you're going to burn down your family. Oh, Warren Wiersbe said this, sex outside of marriage is like robbing a bank. You get something, but it's not yours, and you will one day pay for it. Sex inside of marriage is like putting money in the bank. There's safety, security, and you'll collect dividends. He says sex within marriage can build a relationship that brings joy in the future, but sex apart from marriage has a way of weakening future relationships. And so bottom line is this, church, as God's people, in Christ, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, it behooves us, married or unmarried, to live in sexual purity. Listen, there's no defilement in sex within marriage. Hebrews says that. The marriage bed is undefiled. But outside of marriage, it's defiling. It's corrupting. It defiles God's temple. And God says that we are to maintain holiness in his temple. Paul wrote this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a parallel passage, the words here on the screen. He said, real simply, for this is God's will. You, want to, you just want to know, bottom line, God's will when it comes to, to sexual things. He says, this is God's will. Your sanctification that you keep away from sexual immorality. That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against another and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. Because the Lord is the avenger of all of these offenses as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity but to live lives in, what's it say? Holiness. Holiness. Paul warned in 1 Thessalonians, don't stifle the Spirit. He's warned in Ephesians, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Here's what happens. When we resist the will of God, when we resist the Spirit of God, we stifle His ministry in our life. And you continue in that and you will grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And what happens? Well, your fellowship with God is broken. doesn't mean you're not saved anymore just means that your fellowship with, with God is broken and the Spirit can no longer bless you. The, the, the Holy Spirit of God, all those ministries that the Holy Spirit dwells within you to accomplish, the Holy Spirit is quenched and, and he is stifled in his ministry. And what can happen is that the spiritual darkness that engulfs the lost, that sort of spiritual darkness can come over us to the point where we can begin living like we're an unsaved person. Others might, other, others might look at our life and they wouldn't know that we're a Christian simply because we have so grieved the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We've so grieved and stifled him that, that we begin living and acting as if there's no temple of God here. To everyone else, we look like a temple to Epaphrodite, a temple that is nothing more than like every other temple to a false god in this world. And Paul says, look, 
church, that was your old life. That's what it was like before you were saved. And in fact, if you look, chapter six, we're in chapter six, just go back a couple verses. Look at verse number uh, nine. It says, don't you know that the unrighteousness, the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. It's quite a list, right? And the truth is, we're all on that list somewhere, right? Am I right? We have all fallen short. We have all committed something on that list. Paul's not saying you can't get into heaven if you've done any of these things. I believe that that anyone can be forgiven of any of those things. In fact, that's what Paul says. If you just keep reading, he says, some of you used to be like this. He's writing to people in Corinth. He says, look, these are, this, this is who you were. This is what you've been saved from. But look what he says. But you were washed. God cleaned up you. He cleaned you up. He sanctified you. He set you apart. He made you holy. You've been justified. That just simply means you've been declared righteous. Jesus, God traded accounts with the account of Jesus. He took our sin debt, he took our sin account, and he traded it with the righteousness of Jesus. And so God has declared us, we're on the list, we deserve judgment from God, but God saved us and he washed us and he justified us. He changed accounts and now God sees us as the righteousness of his own son. So why, don't go back to that. Don't go back to living like you used to live. Don't go backwards by dirtying the temple of God. No. Keep the temple clean. Maintain holiness. Why? Because your body belongs to God. It's his. So, number three, the purpose then. What's the purpose of God's dwelling in our body? And here's the purpose. Our body is to be used for God's glorification. Look what he says at the end of verse 20. Real plain. So glorify God with your body. Because of this special relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit, we have a special responsibility What is that responsibility? Well, negatively, there's only two injunctions, two imperatives in these verses. It's flee and glorify. The negative is run from sexual immorality. And the positive is glorify God. Don't contaminate the temple. Glorify God with the temple. You see, the Old Testament temple was also a place of worship. People gathered there to lift up praise to the Lord. And as his house, you are a house of worship. Every area of our life is to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Everything that we do in this body should be as an act of worship to God. Stop and consider that when you, when you think about what you do with your body. Can I actually worship God doing this 
with my body. The glory of God is the ultimate purpose of God's temple. Paul wrote a couple chapters later in 1031. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know what that requires? It requires a body. God is pro-body. He's pro-body. What do they, what do they call the pro, probiotics? That's okay. It's not what I was saying. He's pro-body. That is, he's for the body. He's not anti-body. He's not suspicious of the body. And sometimes, you know, you know, we as Christians, we can be somewhat suspicious of, God's not suspicious of bodies. He gave his own son a human body. Why? As a vessel for doing his will in the world. That's why. Hebrews puts it this way. The words of Psalm 40 on the lips of Jesus who says to his father, a body you have prepared for me. And then Hebrews says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Church, so listen. We too have bodies prepared for us by our heavenly father. Why? To carry out his will in this world. That is why you have your body, not so that you can do whatever you want with it, but so that you can use this body, this flesh and blood, this simple animated dust is all it really is, but so that we can do the will of God as we dwell inside this temple of God. So listen, everywhere you go, everything you do, you take the Holy Spirit with you. You take the temple of God with you. You tell a lie, God's there. Every time you go to the movies, God's there. You go to work, he's there. You go to church, God is there. We just sang the song, fill this place with the Holy Spirit. Look, I'm not gonna fill the room. It's us. It's us. Everywhere we go, we take God with us. So when we go to these places or engage in various activities, we need to understand that we're including God in everything. So what do we want to do? We want to make sure, we want to make sure that it is, that the things that we say and the places that we go, the things that we do, that we are bringing honor and glory rather than dishonor to God. So the question is, is, Will we, will we be ready to use our body with each new day, with all the fresh opportunities he gives us, will we use the temple of the Holy Spirit to display the glory of God? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? That the God who created all this, I mean, think about, just think about the human body and what it took God took some dust and he made a human and they blew breath into him and we became a living soul, right? Think about what God did when he did that. Think about the fact that God 
so loves us and he so loves the world that he has chosen to dwell inside of us. Church, who are you in Christ? You're a temple of God. So let's be ready for every good work. Let's allow God to take our bodies and to use our bodies while we're in them to, to accomplish the will of God. Let me give you our next steps and we're done. Number one, prepare. You could use the word confess here because I think that we have to prepare our body as God's temple. Why? Because the temple gets dirty. And that's what Paul's writing for. He's like, hey, your temples are dirty. What do we do when the temple's dirty? Well, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, what do you do? It can be summed up in one word. You confess. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful, he's just, to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not a question of doing penance or inflicting some sort of chastening punishments on our body. Right? I mean, there, there are those who take that road. They cut themselves and they, you know, they nail, they, they, they strap themselves to a cross like they do in parts of the world and they, they whip themselves and it's all part of like somehow chastising themselves for the sins done. Look, all of that was done on Jesus. All we have to do is confess our sins and when we confess our sins, not only are the sins that we confess forgiven, but the promise is, is that he will cleanse the temple of all unrighteousness. As soon as you confess what you know to be sin, the Holy Spirit, man, he takes a mop and he cleans the whole place. And he forgives us. You see, confession is a sanctifying force. And the Christian who's agonized before God and the knowledge of our own guilt and claim the cleansing of the precious blood of Jesus by that very operation we will be less prone to return to the paths of sin. When we truly confess and repent of our sin, the act of confession is an act of dependence on God. It's a recognition that we're weak. We need divine power. We need his help. We admit that when we confess our sin to him. And so, the, so step number one is do some house cleaning. Is, is there something dirty in your temple? Is there something we need to examine? We need to ask the Holy Spirit, search my heart. Is there anything dirty in here that needs to be confessed? And then confess that to him. Confess it. Next step, number two, has to do with consecration. I will present my body as God's temple. Paul wrote to the Romans to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He wrote in chapter six of Romans that we're to uh, present our members as members of righteousness, not unrighteousness. That's what they were doing in Corinth. They were using their bodies for members of unrighteousness. We've been set free from sin, it says in Romans 6. And so what do we do? We present our, our hands. We pray that they will do what brings glory to God. We present our feet to God and pray that the places that we go will bring glory to God and please the Father. We present our mouth and our eyes and our ears and we pray that 
what we say and what we see and what we hear, that nothing would bring shame on our Lord? Do we consider that? Do we consider that what we allow into our eyes, that just by allowing it in through our eye gate and thinking and perhaps lusting over what we've seen, that we're defiling the temple? Well, when we confess that, we then present our bodies again. We say, Lord, my body is yours. It belongs to you. You paid for it. It's yours. And so, Lord, I consecrate it again to you. It's yours. May my eyes and my feet and my hands, may my body bring glory to you. And then the third next step is to practice. It has to do with conforming. Practicing obedience in our body so as to bring God glory. This is with his help, right? Practicing obedience, it is, it is through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is through the, the work of the Holy Spirit within us. It's not a try harder kind of a thing. It's, it's confessing and preparing so that the Holy Spirit now has the ability in your life to minister, to, to sanctify, to do his work in your life. And so then it's just a matter of practicing obedience. When, when we're confronted with temptation, we, we obey. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee. We just, we leave, we run, right? We simply obey what we know to be right from the word of God. Peter wrote this, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, that's the lost world, so that they will observe your good works and will glorify God. So, who am I in Christ? I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. Who you are in Christ relates to how you live in your body, so let's live so as to bring glory to God.